Leaders and representatives from nearly 200 countries have been gathering in Egypt for COP27. It's the United Nations annual climate change conference. Many people feel COP27 is the world's best hope for climate action, but many critics say it's just greenwashing with little to really actually show for it. They're trying to figure out emission standards. They're trying to figure out who should pay for global warming. They're talking about food scarcity. And we all know what happens if they don't make progress. Doomsday isn't coming next week, but it's out there. It's waiting for us. In the meantime, there's a doomsday glacier the size of Florida that's hanging on by its fingernails. And when it breaks apart, sea levels are going to jump. If there's one piece of ice in the world that our modern world is dependent upon staying stable, it's that one. The Doomsday Glacier is coming on Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. My name is Jeff Goodell. I am a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine and uh, the author of a number of books about climate change, most recently, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and The Remaking of the Civilized World. We reached out to Jeff because he's seen the doomsday glacier with his own eyes. You know, this whole trip was very dramatic and long in planning. We left Punta Arenas uh, at the bottom of South America, in, in Chile, in January, which was um, the summer down there. And we sailed uh, in this 304-foot-long icebreaker ship with about 60 people on board. It felt like a kind of very historic journey because it was we went through the Strait of Magellan and then out into Drake Passage. Ever since I left the city. Which is uh, well-known by sailors as the roughest seas in the world. Uh, we had pretty scary swells for me. It was like 20-foot swells, and the ship was rocking, and furniture was flying, and uh, people were getting seasick and things. I was okay. And then it took us about 10 days, maybe two weeks, to reach uh, Thwaites Glacier, which is on the western coast of Antarctica. It's about halfway down the coast of Antarctica. It's a very remote place. In fact, we were the first people, actually, who have ever were able to approach it from the sea because of the uh, sea ice and uh, the conditions are very difficult to be lucky enough to, to get close to it. One morning at about 6 a.m., there was a bunch of commotion on the ship and everybody jumped out of their bunks and ran up to the deck of the ship and, and there it was, this 
150-foot-high sheet of ice just sort of looming next to us. It was at once incredibly beautiful, incredibly surreal, and terrifying all at once. Just the sort of remoteness of it, the beauty of it, the silence of it, and the feeling that the fate of the world, of many cities in the world, depend upon how this glacier behaves and how this glacier moves. What makes this particular glacier so important? I mean, Thwaites is, is really important for two reasons. One is that, you know, for a long time, scientists have been, obviously have understood that as the world heats up, ice melts. And that's been an obvious concern about climate change for a very long time. But a lot of the attention has been focused on Greenland and on mountain glaciers. Time-lapse video of a glacier in Greenland moving and calving new icebergs into the sea. A new study based on warming that's already occurred paints a dire picture that melting ice from Greenland alone will cause sea levels to rise at least 27 centimeters, almost one foot over the next century. And for a long time, scientists believed that Antarctica was pretty stable. Um, you didn't see a lot of change in the ice melt there. You didn't see the kind of collapsing off the coast that you see in Greenland. But then scientists realized that no, Antarctica is, is not stable. And the center of the instability in Antarctica is in West Antarctica. And it's particularly a glacier called Thwaites Glacier, which is unstable in a particular way because of the way that warm water can get underneath it. And the, the thing that makes it so scary and so important in our picture of what's happening to our world is that this one glacier works like a kind of cork in the wine bottle of all of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And because of the contours of the ground and things underneath the ice, what scientists fear is happens is, is if this one glacier goes, then it basically is like opens the door for the rest of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is an enormous ice sheet, which if it fell into and melted into the Southern Ocean, it would raise sea levels around the world about 10 feet. 10 feet of sea level rise is catastrophic for virtually every coastal city in the world. And so that's why Thwaites is important. If there's one piece of ice in the world that our modern world is dependent upon staying stable, it's that one. It's crumbling and collapsing. We saw that while we were there. The question is, you know, how unstable and how quickly this ice sheet could collapse. And I think it's important to explain that the difference between how people think about ice melting, which is like a popsicle sort of on a picnic table on a hot summer day, which is basically what's happening in the Arctic, in Greenland. But what's happening in Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is, is entirely different. The surface is not melting. You don't go to Thwaites Glacier and see water running off the surface as you do in Greenland. And I've been to Greenland a number of times and seen this. What's happening in Thwaites is the, the changes in the warmth of the Southern Ocean are basically melting the glacier from below. And because of the way the glacier is set on a kind of reverse slope, it means that warm water is sort of flowing down deep under the glacier. The concern is that this glacier is not going to melt in the conventional way, but because it's being destabilized from below, it's going to kind of collapse. And collapse sort of like, imagine 
taking a tray full of ice cubes and just sort of dumping them out. Huh. It's something like that. Do we have any idea how long until the Thwaites Glacier collapses? You know, that's the subject of, you know, much debate in the science community about this. It's certainly not going to happen next year or in 10 years. But whether it can happen in 20 or 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, no one is certain. No one knows exactly what the timescale is. As one scientist I talked to about it said, there's no human analog for this. We, we've never watched a giant glacier like Thwaites collapse in real time before, so we don't really know how fast it can go. Hmm. But it's happening faster than people previously thought. Yes. People thought it was very stable before, and now we know that it's not very stable. And, and you know, again, what the issue here is, unlike Greenland, which is more or less a kind of gradual melt. There's not a lot of surprises scientists fear in the way that Greenland is melting as our planet warms up. But at the Waits Glacier, there are surprises. And because of the way the slope underneath is shaped and because of the warm water getting underneath, it all comes down to how long this glacier will stay stable. Kind of, It's like, imagine pulling out the foundation of a house. And you can pull out a few bricks and a few bricks and a few bricks. But at a certain point, you pull out enough bricks and the house falls down. And no one knows how many bricks it's going to take before Thwaites Glacier collapses. But we know we're pulling bricks out. And that's what's terrifying. You've coined this nickname for this glacier. You call it... The Doomsday Glacier. <laughs> Do people get on you for being alarmist? Uh, yeah, they do, but I, I'm proud of it. You know, I, I wrote a piece. I was one of the first journalists to really write an in-depth piece ab about this risk of collapse in, in Antarctica. And I wrote a very long piece for Rolling Stone a few years ago. And I came up with this title sort of as I came up with much of my writing, you know, at three in the morning, sitting around in my gym shorts and a dirty T-shirt <laughs> and thinking about, you know, what to call this piece. Down in Antarctica, a doomsday glacier is disintegrating faster than previously thought. Okay, that's terrifying. And I gotta say, it doesn't help that we're calling it the Doomsday Glacier. <laughs> Can't we pick something a little happier like the, the Free Guac Glacier or the Have You Lost Weight Iceberg? But I think it's appropriate. I mean, I don't mean to say it's going to fall apart tomorrow, but it's like, you know, we call a gun a lethal weapon because it can kill you. And if there's any glacier in the world that civilization depends upon staying stable, it's this one. And because of its risk of sudden collapse, I, I think it's an appropriate phrase. And it certainly has gotten people's attention. So it worked. It did work. I mean, you know, people talk about it. And, you know, people would not be talking about it, I don't think, as much if we were calling it the Waits Glacier. And, and I don't think that it's alarmist. I think it accurately suggests kind of what's at stake. Support for Today Explain comes from Mint Mobile, the only cell phone that tastes good. When the deal is too good to be true, there's probably a catch, right? That incredibly cheap flight to Europe? You probably can't bring a bag or pick your seat or 
use the restroom. So when I tell you that Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three month plan, you're probably wondering what's the catch? Well, according to Mint Mobile, there is no catch. According to Mint Mobile, it's only 15 bucks a month and their plans come with high speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explain. That is mintmobile.com slash explain. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explain. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Today Explained, back with Jeff Goodell, talking about the perilous effects of a doomsday glacier if and when it breaks apart from Antarctica. But really, we don't need to wait for Thwaites to see the effects because this, as you surely know, is already happening. Yeah, I mean, I started writing about sea level rise after Hurricane Sandy hit New York and I saw all this water uh, in lower Manhattan. Sandy's 14-foot surge washed into Manhattan's South Ferry Station like a tidal wave carrying thousands of pounds of debris. And I was talking to a scientist at Columbia, and he said, well, this is sort of a kind of interesting dress rehearsal for sea level rise, because we had eight or nine feet of water in lower Manhattan. And that was sort of, and still is, the sort of high end of what we might see by the end of the century. But then he said, you really want to think about sea level rise, go down to Miami on a high tide. And I'm like, why? And he said, go and you'll see. So I went to Miami on high tide and I was walking through this area called Sunset Harbor where, you know, there's million dollar condos. I actually bumped into Lenny Kravitz, the the rock (laughs) guy, while I was wandering around. But, you know, I was wandering through water up to my knees on just a sunny day at high tide in Miami in this like district where there's million dollar condos. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. And... I realized that, you know, this city of Miami is built on borrowed time. And that's what began my whole journey into the book, The Water Will Come, and eventually led me to Antarctica. So, present day Miami, Lenny Kravitz and you were walking around and you got water up to your knees right next to million dollar condos. What does Miami look like in, I don't know, 50 years? Miami in 50 years looks like a very different place. Miami in 50 years has water in the living rooms of uh, houses in low-lying areas. It has streets that are submerged. It has collapsing real estate values. It has new disease patterns that we don't 
know about yet and can't anticipate. It has people freaking out about the polluted water that's rising up in their front yard. It's a very different world. I mean, I think that, that in 50 years, there will be a lot of new building in Miami, um, a lot of structures that are elevated. Hopefully, maybe there'll be some even floating buildings, floating structures, things like that. Miami will have no choice but to figure out a way to live with water. There will not be a kind of dry Miami Beach. There will be a inundated Miami Beach. There will be drier places and wetter places, but uh, the water will come. What is Miami doing right now to prepare for that future? Well, you know, when I went first went down there in 2013, they were doing basically nothing, uh, which was stunning to me. Hmm. They've done a lot now. I mean, they are taking this very seriously. Uh, they've spent a lot of millions of dollars improving drainage, uh, which has been a big problem. So when the water comes in, getting it out as quickly as possible. As you can see at the edge of the sidewalk, looking like oceanfront property with the water overflowing there. I they spent a lot of money building pumps, giant pumps the size of, like, you know, cars that are built in various neighborhoods to pump the water out when it comes in. Down on South Beach at 8th and Alton, there was a lot more water, cars driving through several inches, while pumps really did their best to try and push it out of the area. They've changed the building code so that new buildings have to be higher. They've done a lot to elevate critical infrastructure above flood levels. So they're doing a lot, but they have a lot left to do, and, and it's not clear what the strategy is in the long term for the survival of the city. And how does that compare to how other coastal cities in this country and abroad are, are getting ready for this reality? Well, one of the problems that Miami has that other cities don't have is that Miami's built on a kind of porous limestone. Miami limestone is one of the most porous limestones anywhere, and water just pours through it very, very, very rapidly. So you can't really build seawalls in the same way that you can in other places because the water will go underneath the seawall or through this porous limestone and pop up on the other side. Other cities like Charleston, for example, right now is building a, I think they're spending a billion dollars on a very large seawall to keep the water out. The Army Corps of Engineers and city leaders have been drafting plans that look at the impacts from flooding storms and hurricanes on the peninsula. Through that study, officials have suggested a 12-foot storm surge wall that will cost $1.1 billion to help storm impacts for homes and businesses. Houston, I live in Austin, Texas right now, and, and Houston here has this thing called the Ike Dyke, which is a $30 billion wall at the opening of Galveston Bay that will keep storm surges and higher water out. It was the destruction Hurricane Ike left in its wake in 2008 that sparked the idea to protect Galveston and Houston from the devastating surge of another monster storm. But because of the topography and things of Miami, that's impossible to do down there. So they basically have to elevate buildings and figure out ways to live with water because the water is coming. You know, we see all along the Gulf Coast, Houston, New Orleans, all these places are sinking also. If the ground beneath you is sinking uh, because of pumping out water from the aquifer below and other reasons, that accelerates sea level rise. So places like New Orleans are in big trouble, even though they have spent millions or billions of dollars on all the dikes and other protection, flood protection after Hurricane Katrina. 
Rain came down hard and fast, leaving flooding all over parts of southeast Louisiana. The rain caused problems from the North Shore to Plaquemines Parish and just about everywhere in between. You know, cities like Venice built on water, but are also in enormous trouble. Also, they're subsiding and sinking. They're building big gates to try to keep the water out, but that's not going to work. And then you see it in lots of cities around the world. Asia, Bangkok is in, in big trouble. Uh, Indonesia, Jakarta, places like that are also in big trouble. And so what's going to happen is not just the sort of inundation of cities and what that means for things like real estate values and stuff, but it also means migration. People are going to be leaving. And where are they going to go? Experts are predicting as many as one billion climate migrants crossing international borders in the balance of this century. Think of the millions that are crossing borders now and the xenophobia and authoritarian populism that is caused by a large surge of refugees. And then imagine, if you will, what a billion climate refugees would do. It would end the possibilities of self-governance. Migration, immigration is a giant issue, and sea level rise is going to be kind of an, an engine of that. Do you see clear examples of good reactions to this and, and bad reactions to this? People who are taking the right steps and, and taking the threat very seriously? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all of these cities I've mentioned, Miami, you know, New Orleans, Houston, New York, Boston, I think many cities are taking the threat very seriously. I think the question is, like, what do you do and where do you get the money and how do you actually get things done? And I think that it's pretty easy to get the Army Corps of Engineers to build a big wall and try to keep the water out that way. But really, it's going to require thinking about things like retreat, like managed retreat, like saying we're not going to build in, the, in the particular areas because it's getting flooded out all the time. And how you deal with that and the kind of collapsing or reduction of the tax base is a, a big problem. So I don't think the awareness right now is, is the issue. I think the issue is what do we do and how do we do it and how much is it going to cost? Are we at least past the point, Jeff, where people are refusing to acknowledge the threat that People say, oh, you know, sea levels, they rise and they fall. It's, it's a cycle we've seen through history. Is that thinking, is that mentality a thing of the past at this point? Uh, well, no. I mean, certainly there are plenty of people who still think it's sort of natural cycles and things like that. But I, I, I think that that's, you know, fading fast. And I think that it's not just because people can see high tide flooding in places where they didn't see it 10 years ago and things like that. But I also think the accumulated evidence of climate change with wildfires, heat waves, we all see it and feel it in our lives in a way that I think a lot of people then saw climate change as this sort of future event. There was a lot of talk about, oh, you know, my grandkids, they will have to deal with it and I want to preserve and do the right thing for my grandkids. Well, now, just a decade or so later, now it's like, no, hell, it's here now. It's happening to us now in real time. And I think you have to be particularly kind of deluded or um, blind to the world to not see that. And I think that's true broadly. I mean, I've seen it in my own reporting over the last decade. You know, there I don't meet that many deniers anymore. I meet a lot of people that say, what the hell are we going to do and how much is it going to cost? And... Let's talk about what the hell we can do as it pertains to your doomsday glacier, to the Thwaites Glacier. 
Is there anything that can be done to stop it from collapsing, or has that ship sailed? No, that ship has not sailed. I mean, I think it's really important to underscore that what is driving this collapse of Thwaites Glacier, the Doomsday Glacier, is the warming of the ocean. The ocean is warming up because we're burning fossil fuels and putting CO2 into the atmosphere. It's very clear from all of the science that if we stop doing that and we stabilize the Earth's temperatures, we will stop warming up the ocean further, and that greatly reduces the risk of collapse of Thwaites Glacier. It doesn't mean that it won't collapse because there's still a lot of heat built up in the ocean and no one can say for sure. But we can say for sure that if we stop burning fossil fuels and dumping CO2 into the atmosphere, we're going to lower the risk of that happening. So that is the number one thing that we have to do if you want to talk about how do we reduce the risk of Thwaites. I mean, I've, there's wild, nutty stories about using jacks and some kind of like weird like props to hold it up or something like that, or putting ropes around it and like trying to hold it in place and all kinds of crazy ideas, these sort of techno fixes. None of them do I or anybody that I know who's a, you know in the world of science who understands this stuff take at all seriously. The big tool is decarbonization is getting off fossil fuels. That's the most important thing we could do. And then preparing in a realistic way for the fact that seas are going to rise. And we're not going to stop that. The seas are going to rise. And we need to begin thinking about living differently on the coasts. Jeff Cadell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. You can find his writing on the Doomsday Glacier at rollingstone.com. Our program today was produced by Abishai Artsy. It was edited by me and Matthew Collette and engineered by Paul Robert Mounty. Laura Bullard fact-checked. The show is Today Explained. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.